Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> we had a long night last night here in Las Vegas. The conversation with Dean Cook, star-studded cast, except for my hero, Mike Diamond, was saving lives as normal. Uh, Mike, best. welcome back to office hours early in the morning. Thank you. I'm sorry I didn't make it. You know, if I can get there, I'm always there. I, I would have loved to see Dean Cook. He's amazing. Yeah, all the boys, Clinton, and it was it was amazing. Austin Eckler was there, Forrest Griffin, uh, Dan Fleischman. We had a great group of people, but we seem to be doing something right, Mike. I just have to tell you, because if we can attract someone like James Keith in the house, uh, talking about one of my favorite topics, which my perspective have changed throughout the years, um, and I've kind of slipped into the entrepreneurial space, Mike, you know, there's a lot of confusion about education and people identify education with going to college uh, or going to graduate school. Um, but there's so much empowerment in education and it's so easily accessible at the highest level. You know, everyone basically, uh, Jim and Mike, they have the ability to be uh, Napoleon Hill for free. <laughs> which is a pretty extraordinary opportunity. And yet I don't think people take advantage of that freedom that exists today. And I cannot wait for the upcoming book. Education is freedom uh, because it is the future is in your hands. And this launches on the 27th of February. Hold, hold it up in your hands. Uh, there's a lot more today in education than just what my mom taught, which was doctor, lawyer, failure. The fetus isn't fully developed till after graduate school. Now, although my siblings all went to Harvard, Penn, and Columbia and graduated summa cum laude, uh, I think they're more aligned uh, with the common denominators that you discuss in your book. Welcome to Office Hours, Jim Keats. Thank you, David. Great to be with you. Well, let's talk about education. I think, you know, people are confused between secular or curriculum and, you know, truly improving ourselves in the greatest manner. Give us a little bit of background. You've been the CEO of some of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, what role has education played in your success and how has that changed now in your book, Education is Freedom? Yeah, well, thanks, David. It's, it, it's basically the primary enabler in my life. I, I, I grew up uh, one of those kids that wasn't expected to go to school. Lots of kids in the family. Uh, my brothers and sisters weren't at Harvard or Columbia. My, mine were at the local factory and the gas station, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you should have my mom. It would have come with a lot of guilt, too, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things. Most of us grow up, depending on where you grow up and how you grow up, you know, you kind of blend into your environment. And I grew up in a small mill town in Massachusetts where everybody, you know, was expected to get out of school, high, get through high school if you could, and then go to work in the local factory or whatever. And uh, that was sort of the expectation. But for me, for some reason, and maybe it's because I was the youngest, um, I had the advantage of, you know, learning from some of their mistakes. And um, I said, well, plus I, I had a, a ton of challenges, a divorce in the family, mother leaves, you know, broken, broken home, father passes away when I'm 12. And I, I was kind of on my own as a kid, and I realized at a very early age, you know, no one's really going to take care of me if I have to 
if I have to get a, get by on my own, I better figure it out. And and school ended up being the thing. I was able to pour myself into the studies, and the you know the harder I worked, the more I was rewarded. Uh, and that message sort of carried through not only the academic journey but also my professional journey. I love what you just said, Dan. Um, well, first of all, I think a transition is brilliant that you were the CEO of Blockbuster in 7-Eleven. No, that's fantastic. But I love, because a lot of people struggle with, especially I deal with the addiction circuit, right? Now, young kids, broken home, dad dies, addiction. At 12, you made this incredible decision to bring the power back to yourself. And I think that is so empowering because that gives you the freedom. You started to educate yourself. Right. And you, you could say, well, was you the youngest? No, that's a really special quality that you had inside. You know, that in, internal locus. Can you talk about that? Because, you know, to you still blockbuster, 7 Eleven, books, education, still a very interesting journey. Yeah. Well, th thanks, Mike. Because the, you know, the, there's a perception out there that, you know, the American dream is dead and, you know, I can't, I can't do it today. The man's against me. The college is too expensive. You know, there's a million excuses, right? Well, I had a lot of, a lot of the deck stacked against me too. And I figured it out. And, and um, that's why the, the, you know, the, the, um, the subtitle of the book is the future's in your hands. And I, and I mean that both lit, literally and figuratively, because what I had access to at the time was a set of encyclopedias my mom brought home from the grocery store, you know, free with a purchase, right? <laughs> some, of, some of you may remember those, right? And, and they were great, but that was my that was my access to learning. But I poured myself into them because I said, you know, the world is in here. I can learn about the world from this set of encyclopedias. And, you know, you, you reference that, you contrast that today with what we've got here. I mean... There is unlimited access to information. I wish when I was a kid struggling with calculus that I had access to the Khan Academy free, right? It's, it's all there. And so there's absolutely today no excuse for anyone not to take their future, their own destiny in their own hands and use technology to supplement it. You don't have to bypass the formal education system. I mean, realistically, we need some sort of measured measurement capabilities. And, you know, I remind my young friends, somebody's going to look at your resume someday <laughs> and you have to differentiate yourself, you know, from others. And that's a great way to do it. But there's no excuse for not learning, for not grabbing the tools that are available today. And it's funny you say that, Jim, because my mom, who's a single mom, my dad left when I was five, you know, said exactly that to me. Right. I had every excuse not to go to college, not to go to law school. I just wanted to make money because I had such an extraordinary mom. I just wanted to buy her a house. And, you know, I didn't need I was a great natural born salesperson. I didn't need to go to college to sell and I didn't need to go to law school to sell. And ironically, I ended up coming out of law school and selling <clears throat> legal research online and you know, our first exit was $3.4 billion in 1995 with Westlaw. Uh, but today there's a resistance to education, which is ironic because it's so accessible. Uh, but I call it the distance of resistance. You know, people, our behaviors uh, 
we, we want instant gratification of the outcome, the consequences, the results. Well, humans are not capable of understanding or knowing, knowing consequences and outcomes immediately from their behavior. So they quit good behavior and they continue bad behavior. And then they wonder why they're not where they want to be. Right. What I found and why your book was so intriguing to me is you really address the two things that are required to shorten the distance of resistance between behavior and outcomes that you want or better in your life, which you and Mike have experienced. And, you know, Mike has got educated every day in a different way, coming from Australia, uh, not having a formal education, but yet still you know, has written some extraordinary books and coaches and teaches. But we need education and faith. Those are the two things that shorten the distance. Um, I know you talk about the what, the why, and the how. Um, I'm really curious about the why, because a lot of people, I think, either agree or disagree with us about education, but they're completely perplexed by the why uh, of getting educated or becoming and understanding the freedom that comes along with that. Yeah, David, thanks for asking that question, because it, it was kind of an interesting journey as I went down the path with this book and uh, trying to trying to frame the message, because the message to me was important, you know, about lifelong learning and whatever you can, you know, opening up doors for opportunity. But a friend of mine in, the, in an early draft said, you know, Jim, you haven't addressed the why. And he and he made me read Simon Sinek's book. Right. And I was like you know, you're right. I haven't. And I, I started to step back from the, the challenge of communicating this important message. And I said, okay, uh, you know, there are elements that I've talked about that really are part of the why. So the why are three things that I've captured. I've captured a chapter on each one. And one is collaboration. You know, there's no class on collaboration, right? First time I ever had to collaborate with anybody in my academic whole career, right, was in graduate school, all of a sudden I'm in a business school class, I have to do a case study, and I'm forced to do the case study with other people, and I hated it. My grade is going to depend on these shocks, you know, come on. <laughs> My 13-year-old still says that to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, it was frightening. So, um, but, but what I realized is, you know, it, this happened to be an accounting case study, and oh, wow, couple of members of the case study came from KPMG and they're, you know, they're CPAs and I had never had an accounting class in my life. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa, yeah, okay. I'm going to really rely on you. So I thought I was going to coast with them, but they didn't have an ounce of creativity. And we ended up, what I brought to the table was a really creative way of comparing balance sheets that a formal account, formally trained accountant was horrified at, but it worked. And it, and, it, and it proved to me the balance of collaboration and the, and the opportunity to learn from others and work together. So that was one. The second is cultural literacy. And, you know, this, this word diversity today is getting all kinds of, you know, well, don't say diversity. Don't say DEI <laughs> or anything like that, or you're going to get a whole, you know, political firestorm. But what I learned really early on, I, I had an opportunity to go to uh, study at the University of London, and all of a sudden I was a minority. I was the yank. I was the guy that was the outsider and different and had funny accents, and, um, and I was stereotyped for being American. And, you know, I, I realized that I, I had to adapt to 
my my environment and i learned their culture and it was not just the brits it was the pakistanis the indians everybody that was in this melting pot of the university that i was attending and um and i realized that i had more to learn from them i had so much more to learn from them so cultural literacy is a chapter in my book talking about you know forget about all of these issues surrounding the concept of diversity and all that stuff what's really important is that we can learn from other people and other cultures and make it part of us so that's an important element in the why of learning and then finally the third that we don't teach in school is character i've got a whole chapter on character integrity you know empathy um things like uh you know being able to um have sensitivity to others and their needs and 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 get along in this world um your integrity your character basically is your brand and so again we don't teach that in school so the why of school is you learn character by being immersed in those environments you learn collaboration by having to work with others uh and you learn cultural literacy by being with people that are not like you. And so uh that to me was the why of of education. Those are experiences that you know as as much information as you can get from here which is wonderful. Unfortunately, you can't get that. You have to get that by immersing yourself into that into that other world. I am so happy that you did address that because of that combination to be free means so many different things to so many different people. We give meaning to everything that we see and through education and faith the why we can get there to where we want to be or even better the proof is in the pudding and someone like Jim Keyes who's been the CEO of Blockbuster and 7-11 will later on in his career teach us what needs to be taught check out educationisfreedom.org uh February 27th I believe is the release of this life-changing book uh you can check out all of that work Jim just make uh, Mike and I one promise we have other shows we'd love to have you on uh we want to raise awareness uh to the importance of education and faith in shortening the distance of all the resistance that's out there thank you so much for joining us we'll see you soon thank you guys you got it take care thank you the amazing jim keys we're blessed to have uh, amazing friends here on office hours mike uh next we have going into my my past we have uh, the amazing Steve Hogan is here executive director of the Florida Citrus Sports floridacitrussports.com welcome Steve hey thanks for having me we have a, a, a very high level eclectic group as you can see here when we're bringing uh guys like Jim Keys and Steve Hogan on <laughs> so early in the morning here on the west coast uh but understanding the change in the ecosystem in sports you know I've been working for 35 years in sports and entertainment and it's changed so much for me um you're one of the thought leaders uh that I see in sports and entertainment uh and with the FCS uh which is a non-profit by the way um you've seen from all the bowl games uh and all the parades and I sit on the board of the, the Rose Bowl uh with the Warren Moon my business partner we have seen some great changes uh let's talk about the economic impact comparatively as we've evolved because that's one of the things that 
I think a lot of people don't. I'm here in Las Vegas at CES, and there's so many different things going on. And I look around at the Sphere and the, the Legion, and the Super Bowl is going to be here. And I'm thinking, you know, and F1 was just here. What is the economic impact comparatively to, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when we started, maybe even 30 years ago? Uh, you're talking about almost world economy type, type of stuff uh, to each state or even city. Yeah, you know, thank you. We're, we're you know, my board, my board would tell you that uh, nonprofit is, uh, you know, a tax status, not a business philosophy for sure. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're, uh, we, we, you know, our jobs impact, honestly, you, you're hitting it on the head and one big piece of it's economic, but the others are socioeconomic in our community. Talk about that. At some point, you know, with the investments in the neighborhoods around the building through sports entertainment and housing and health and wellness, so forth and so on. But we want to positively impact this community and economically bowl games, you know, it'll ebb and flow. Sometimes you'll have local teams that'll have a shorter stay. Sometimes, you know, two big brands from out of market, you know, think anywhere from 30 million, you know, 29 or 30 million to 45 million or so being the the window of opportunity for, for a major game in any particular year. We host two um, within four days. We have four picks um, after the college ball playoffs. So between the Pop-Tarts Bowl and the Cheese at Citrus Bowl, which is almost eight decades old now, uh, just finished on New Year's Day. And, and then, of course, we have one of the largest black college games in the country, uh, historically black college and university games with Florida A&M and Bethune-Cookman. So they're all huge. And, you know, you'd love to be somewhere in that 30 to $45 million range, depending on overall travel. <laughs> Amazing. So, I was going to say something in the notes. It said that one of the projects took 10 years. You're working with the community for 10 years to put it together. That's incredible. Can you talk about that? Because a lot of people think that you can get up and you can throw this stuff together in a weekend. <laughs> oh, it didn't work and they quit. They just don't understand the resilience, the patience, and you're working with the community. Can you go into that process? It's so important for people to understand. Yeah, no, thanks for pointing that out, right? I mean, these games, and you know this from the Rose Bowl, the oldest, the granddaddy of them all, 100-plus years in the postseason. We, we've been almost eight decades now for such a young community here in Orlando on, on our Cheese and Citrus Bowl. And they were all founded in community. They're founded for a lot of reasons, right? In our town, the, the Citrus Bowl was created as a beneficiary of a children's hospital. It's like, okay, you know, the Rose Bowl is doing it, Orange Bowl, Cotton Bowl. You know, let, let's start a bowl game, and we will help it be a, you know, instead of doing a barbecue or – whatever, a golf tournament will fund this children's hospital. And so from that day till now, you know, it's very important to us as a community organization that we use sports and entertainment in general to fuel this local impact. We don't have a pro tenant here uh, or a college tenant at Camping World Stadium. It truly is a neutral site destination. Uh, we're, we're, we're on the eve of, we hope, one more public investment in the building, get a vote on the 23rd for $400 million to finish the campus. Um, you know, with that, you want to drive, think Vegas, you mentioned it, the non-Raiders schedule uh, in 2022, I think was 1.1 million people, right? Going to motorsports and concerts and international soccer. Um, that That's big impact. Think $650, $700 million a year in overall economic impact. That's our job. And, and we happen to be that tenant at Camping World that monetizes those parts of the building. So 
when the first investment happened, sorry for the, the preamble, but when the first investment happened in 14 to remake, you know, Camping World was the Tangerine Bowl, then Citrus Bowl, which which was a like all college buildings built around itself, this Frankenstein of a building. Well, we knew we needed to compete. So you had to demolition that and start to rebuild and have a state of the art, ultimately 66,000 seat building. So when that vote was going to happen in 2007, we stepped back and said, no, wait a minute, the neighborhood that we're in that we've called home for all of our eight decades of games um, has, has kind of been left out of the investment conversation. There's not been a lot of progress. It was one of the first neighborhoods that African-Americans could own a home in, in our community in, in the 40s and 50s. It's where much of the housing started to be built. A lot of proud, historic legacy, broad-shouldered um, uh, African-American leaders in our community live proximate to the building. So when that was going to happen, we stepped back and said, no, wait a minute, it wouldn't be fair. Two hundred some million dollars for a, for a building, no investment in the neighborhoods around it. There, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a way that this the more successful this sports palace is, the more successful these communities and residents will be. And so we set about, you know, to, to, to be about that mission. We spent a year learning for, you know, fourteen hundred in-home surveys, ask mom, grandma, what do you want to do? And those four things where I want to safe, affordable houses, you know, place to live. I want best education money could buy, want access to a better job, career for my family, and I need some access to health and wellness. See a doctor, let my kid go outside, be healthy and play. So we're 10 years in, $120 million later, um, two mixed income affordable housing developments, just opened a 30,000 square foot health and wellness building, uh, have a $10 million boys and girls club, state-of-the-art park with splash pads and playgrounds, NFL, play 60 fields, uh, you know, and and just have, have a state-of-the-art 150 uh, kid early education facility. So sorry for the long-winded answer. I love that you asked, but it's been the most popular thing when you talk to student athletes upon arrival. The NFL Pro Bowl will be here in a few weeks um, and have been a big part of this from, from 2016 on. I love it. The players, I grew up in a neighborhood like that. To think that somehow, some way, playing in Camping World leaves that legacy behind. I mean, it's a it's been the highlight of my career. And I, and I think it's, it's, you know, our day job is sports entertainment and economic impact, but our passion is uh, this relationship, you know, with the community. So. Yeah. And the relationship, as you say, although you are a nonprofit and the intention of all of that money is to do good and to develop the community uh, in all different types of aspects. Um, I will tell you as a historical marketing person, uh, I know you were a key cog in one of what I thought was the most brilliant marketing uh, coup of all time in, in sports. You know, th there's certain things that stand out in history. Uh, the edible mascot, uh, my favorite flavor of a strawberry Pop-Tart. Uh, it takes, you know, I think a seasoned marketing vet like yourself to understand the stage theory of what was used to be a live title sponsorship. It was the amplification of how clever the Pop-Tart Bowl was. I can't tell you even because it was so strong who played in the Pop-Tart Bowl, <laughs> but all I know is that I saw the Strawberry Pop-Tart every single place, TV, XM Sirius Radio, of course, LinkedIn. He's uh, running with the bowls now, right? I, <laughs> I mean, if they're not doubling your salary for that one marketing <laughs> campaign, and if Pop Tart doesn't think that uh, 
you know, they got their money's worth. Uh, they are mistaken because it was the talk. I mean, it was better than the national championship game, you know, and I'll, I'll be it. I'm an Ohio state yeah. fan, but I just wanted to give you kudos uh, because you're thinking, how can we help other people with our creativity and collaboration? Uh, the other thing I'd love to have you back onto the podcast and Mike has shows and, and uh, but I want to talk about the Pro Bowl, you know, uh, business partner Warren Moon. We used to, we had the oldest and biggest Super Bowl party with Lee Steinberg and the oldest and biggest Pro Bowl party in Hawaii. And I think there's a huge opportunity for Orlando to be the home of the Pro Bowl. I know you've been working on it, but we need to make it after the Super Bowl so everybody can participate. And you need an award show that people can be there and zoom into. So we can honor and we need to mesh kind of the NFL honors and the Pro Bowl together so the best players get honored and the community can thrive on some TV uh, rights that, that really would be worth something. So just an idea to, to plant a seed, Steve. We, we keep it short here just to stimulate interest, but congratulations on what you do because I love people that make a lot of money to help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. You are an icon. Uh, for making a lot of money to help a lot of people. The executive director of the Florida Citrus Sports. I'm coming to Florida in a couple of weeks with Rick Macy and a few others. So ho hopefully we can get together. If not, let's have you back on to my podcast as well. I know Mike would love to share uh, his uh, exposure. Uh, Steve Hogan, thank you for living up. Uh, you, you filled the shoes of even Jim Keyes. The CEO of Blockbuster in, in 7-Eleven. Not too bad, buddy. I appreciate you guys. You guys are the best. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Congrats. <laughs> All that Pop-Tart uh, talk, I got hungry. I want to thank uh, Dr. Jonathan Javitt for his patience. Uh, you know, we have the leaders in the, in the world that come on this show. It always amazes me. Now we have the founder and chief scientist of NRX Pharmaceuticals in Miami, <clears throat> which we'll be to in a couple weeks uh, down there. I'll be speaking at a CEO summit and having a meetup at Rick Macy's Academy. He's the Coach of Serena Williams, Venus Williams, Roder Capriati, who's in the movie King Richard, if you didn't check it. But moving along, <clears throat> the pharmaceutical space is complex and influential. So I want to have uh, Dr. Jonathan Javit here with us. Welcome to Office Hours. David, it's great to see you. Great to have you here. Um, you know, there's so much in the manufacturing and legality of pharmaceuticals. And obviously you have worked your way through, uh, you know, this process, which takes a lot of money and a lot of time. We were talking 10 years, Mike, uh, you know, that he was working on getting the Pro Bowl to Orlando or whatever. <clears throat> to create a legal ketamine product, how long has it taken you and how much money does it take uh, to help so many people struggling with bipolar depression and acute suicidal tendencies? Well, you know, in our case, we actually never intended uh, to create a legal ketamine product. We thought others were going to do it. Uh, we expected that uh, others and, uh, you know, this is sort of well known in the stock market. We're going to come in with with nasal ketamine products that were going to be safe and effective for uh, you know, stopping suicidal ideation. And we'd be coming in behind that with a safe oral pill that would maintain that effect. And of course, we're continuing to develop that pill. 
uh, and we hope that it'll be available to people pretty quickly. Uh, but then we suddenly <coughs> found ourselves in a situation where uh, the the idea of you know delivering ketamine as a, as a nose spray just didn't work, uh, and there's this huge vacuum where people are buying ketamine uh, from compounding pharmacies. FDA's warned against that practice, and we said there needs to be a safe and, and legal form of ketamine available because this is a life saving drug. And what we did is partnered with uh, the government of France that had just done a brilliant hot study in seven hospitals showing a statistically uh, significant effect, which is what the FDA requires, uh, ketamine uh, versus placebo. And we partnered with Columbia University that had just done uh, an equally brilliant study, showed the same thing uh, to a, a high degree of certainty. So, you know, with those two partnerships in place, uh, we've got a portfolio that we plan to submit to uh, the FDA in March uh, in support of new drug approval. Now, the, the work that we've done, of course, uh, is on the manufacturing side because ketamine is a 70-year-old drug. The form of ketamine that people use today uh, you know, was, was put into a bottle 50 years ago. It uh, wasn't necessarily put into a bottle to the manufacturing standards of 2024. Uh, and we've been doing that work together with uh, a, a brilliant partner in West Columbia, South Carolina, a woman-owned business called Nephron Pharmaceuticals. Uh, and uh, you know, that, that's how we've put this together. It's not a, a standard drug development project in the sense that we haven't, haven't spent 10 years in the laboratory uh, we've been able to pull this together you know, pretty quickly because there's this extraordinary public health need. Dr. Jonathan, um, I'm in the, I do interventions with like, especially now with fentanyl, it's out of control. And a lot of people don't understand that the therapeutic and uh, the detailed work with ketamine under the right setting is, it really helps a lot of people that suffer with trauma and that I do have mental health issues. How do you produce it, something like this? And how does it how does it not go into the marketplace? Unfortunately, you can't control the marketplace and not get out of control. Uh, there's always good intention. Like I know a friend of mine that takes fentanyl patches, she has to, but then the fentanyl gets out of control. So how do you, is there a way to try to monitor how it's distributed, how it's manufactured so it doesn't get out of control in the street use? You know, Mike, that, that's an amazing question. I have to admit you're the first person who's asked me that question. Uh, and uh, one of the things that, that we've done uh, in our development work uh, with Nephron, uh, you know, with uh, Luke Kennedy's company, is uh, every single vial. First of all, it's a, <clears throat> it's a single patient vial. Uh, it's not a, a multi-dose vial as you would use in a hospital uh, operating room for anesthesia. Uh, every single vial is microchipped. And we can't guarantee that somebody's not going to take a sledgehammer and you know break open a drug safe and, and steal a bunch. Uh, but we, uh, we do know that uh, if, if DEA or, or law enforcement finds a bunch, they'll be able to trace 
exactly where that vial came from and every place it has been prior to the diversion. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, and <clears throat> Docker's amazing. And uh, we were talking earlier with the former CEO of Blockbuster and 7-Eleven. I don't know if we were listening in, uh, Jim Keyes, and he was talking about education being freedom and people's meaning of freedom is so different, but uh, our access to education is different as well. And coming from someone like you that has been educated at the highest level and that education, whether it be from Princeton or Cornell or John Hopkins, uh, makes a difference. And it doesn't just make a difference for the person who's educated. It's the amplification of what we learn in the collaboration of that wisdom or education and the faith that we have. And, you know, whether it was the Reagan administration, the Clinton administration, uh, to President Bush, uh, you have led the way in understanding uh, how we can save lives. Uh, it's that simple. And that's quite an impact on the world. And I know uh, as depression is probably one of the greatest causes of death today. It's one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing cause of death, depression, <clears throat> and suicidal ideation or tendencies. Uh, we wanted to have you on and thank you for the work that you're doing and would love to have you back uh, as well to increase the awareness to how to utilize legal ketamine and other solutions for people that are struggling today with the fastest growing cause of death in many different categories. So doctor, thank you for taking the time uh, with your education and faith to help us all. We'll have you back. We appreciate you. David, it's really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing. <clears throat> well, good Good thing I don't uh, have worthiness issues because uh, it'd be quite easy to feel quite insignificant today on the show. <laughs> I feel like I'm at a family reunion. Uh, where'd you go to college? Um, anyways, look at the guests we've had. <laughs> and our last guest isn't going to uh, disappoint as well. Uh, he's been patiently waiting in the green room. Ben Summers, you are in a, a Hall of Fame group of guests today. So welcome as the managing director of Adagio Group. And he has his new book, The Shadow Banker's Secret, uh, Investment Banking for Alternatives. Welcome to Office Hours. Appreciate that, David. Well, let's start with the obvious, which is, most people don't know what a shadow bank is. <laughs> so yeah. if, if you could kind of set the stage for us in shadow banking. Sure. So banking, as most people are aware, are commercial banks, right? They're technically speaking depository institutions that are generally regulated by the Federal Reserve Board, right? So shadow banks are all the financial institutions that find, fall outside that depository uh, domain. So investment banks, hedge funds, any sort of issuer of uh, an alternative investment vehicle. Uh, that's the general domain of the shadow banking world, although it's, a, it's got kind of a, a mystique, right? Sometimes even a negative connotation. Uh, it's where real, the real money really trade, uh, changes hands. So I'm going to bring something up here, Ben, because I didn't think Dave, Dave should have picked this up. Dave is a San Diego Padres fan, and you played for the Padres, right? Right, but the minor league system, uh, Signed with them back in uh, 2000. Dave, 
And all Dave does is talk smack about people that he's like, oh, the Stanford this, and he's got a guy that he actually can get along with, and he doesn't even see that. There you go. <laughs> I have to call him out. So yeah, you go from professional baseball into like banking. Talk about the transition and how yeah. did they work together? Because that's a great transition. It's very interesting. Yeah, there's so many things to cover, right? Um, so my academic background is physics. Um, and one of the advantages that I have in the um, finance world is that I'm not indoctrinated by the culture, albeit religion, right, that governs uh, what really is a dogma. Um, and so coming in from a technical uh, background gave me sort of a, an objective perspective to pursue things, I think, in a more meritocratic way, right? Um, so my, my entire life, I pursued what I was genuinely interested in as opposed to treating, say, education or any endeavor as a trade, right? So, like, I thought the space was fascinating, right? Had no idea how hard physics was, right? So that's why I pursued physics. And it turns out, uh, like, it was definitely worthwhile. Didn't know that the math skills that you pick up along the way have got, can be very easily monetized, right? And so um, when my baseball career came to an end, my mid to late 20s, like, I was depressed, right? I drank a lot of scotch. Um, my father was in the oil and gas industry and that was sort of the natural segue. Right. Um, and that is a very anti-intellectual, very fraternal, um, sort of, uh, dynamic. Right. And so I, I figured I gotta get out and do something on my own. Um, and this is, you know, mid two thousands when real estate is peaking. And so I was like, well, the biggest challenge that most entrepreneurs face is, cash, liquidity, right? Startup capital, right? And so at that time, particularly leverage was readily available, right? And so I started out as just a neophyte, um, ignorant, uh, mom and pop real estate investor. Uh, but maybe a little bit different is that the technical background gave me some insights that say most people didn't have, right? So long story short, quickly evolved from uh, trying to buy properties to bridge lending, to creating derivative structures around bridge lending, to effectively securitizing other asset managers. So now our role in the market on the buy side is to identify asset managers who can generate objectively better performance than what's otherwise available to traditional markets, develop securities, investments that bridge the gap between what they would naturally issue and capital market demand, and then distribute those primarily through funds of funds, making inroads in the endowment space and, and other sort of institutions. So that's kind of a take-home story. Um, and what you may find kind of shocking, right? Um, we're working on developing a financial, engin financial engineering department at LSU, uh, starting at GW and then Carnegie Mellon. And the idea is that, not the idea, but the uh, surprise is that really nobody in traditional finance knows anything. And that's the nature of the academic curriculum. There's not enough math, right? You take one calculus class and that's it. You can ask anybody in finance, academic, practitioner, or otherwise, what is risk? Nobody can give you an answer. Shocking, right? Ostensibly, the entire industry is predicated on we are conservative. We are risk managers. They can't even define the term, right? Um, they're stuck in like 1964 with Markowitz and Sharp, but it's a standard deviation, right? Or some other qualitative definition. So you see like Princeton and NYU, Georgia Tech, uh, UC Santa Barbara, They've got financial engineering programs. They don't live in the business school. They live in the engineering school. So we're really pushing 
a more meritocratic objective approach uh, to not only allocation, but investment design. And uh, so the academic front has been sort of really fulfilling there and opened up a lot of sort of uh, opportunity, particularly in the endowment space. But uh, the irony is that you talk like finance people would condescend all day long to gamblers. But you talk to anybody in the gambling industry, they know what risk is, right? They know, right? Or even like your grandmother, like she knows if I go play black or red and roulette or, or blackjack, I'm going to do better than the slots, right? Because the probability of loss weighted by the expected degree of that loss, right? is better. It's clearly defined. It's how the profit margins are, are sort of built into the system. Nobody in finance knows that, right? Like a guy named uh, Michaelis Kapsos in 2014 developed the mathematical tools to measure it. Nobody knows it. Nobody knows. It's an obscure academic paper in Europe that nobody knows about, right? So anyway, uh, kind of a, a whole ball of wax that kind of wrapped into one messy discussion. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating to, to look at from an, as a, from an objective sort of outside perspective. Ben, I'm, I'm fascinated. As you know, I ran Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment. Jeff Moore, I ran the baseball practice, actually owned the Padres when I came in and took his job at Lee's. Um, but I'm just thinking as you were speaking, how bored you must have been when you were in the farm leagues because uh, I had several clients, you know, Eric Karras and Kevin Tahan that were uh, educated like you and curious like you. And I could just see you in the locker room reading, reading instead of talking uh, because one of the greatest challenges of playing in the farm system is not the most stimulating conversations for someone that is speaking of applied mathematics and theoretical physics and timing and risk tolerance, which are crucial in my career, actually, that I try to hopefully explain in a more simple level like you to people so they can understand. The, the last question I have for you is I'm on a mission like Mike to empower others, to empower others to do good, to be happy, to do well by doing good and by doing good and doing well. Um, you have written this book to help people use shadow banks for good. And, you know, even the name shadow banks does not align with, you know, this positive goodness that we all believe in. Uh, what's one of the things that people can do with shadow banks uh, for good? So um, love the question. And the motivation is really um, important. So a lot of people are dismayed, uh, frustrated by the ostensible corruption in the system, right? The banking industry runs everything. Like back in 2008, 2012, people had no idea how central banking worked, how fractional reserve banking worked. People like an average person in the street is kind of becoming aware that, hey, wait, banks effectively print money. Not exactly that easy, but some variation thereof, right? So, and every time I would talk to somebody about, well, okay, you're frustrated. What do you want to do about it? Right? Oh, there's nothing you can do. You can't do anything. Are you stuck? Like, and it's not true, right? So the, the reason for writing the book is that it provides the roadmap to literally creating and monetizing capital, perfectly analogous to fractional reserve banking. So, I mean, not everybody knows, but long story short, basically um, commercial banks take dead instruments. They put them on the asset side of the balance sheet, and then that allows them to offset that with creating cash, which is a deposit and liability side, right? So anyway, that's a money creation mechanism. Now they can do it by fiat, fine, right? But you can also do the exact same thing. You create the money in the exact same, or 
analogous manner privately, right? And the way you do it is through funds. But everybody thinks that, oh, I'm going to go to my local attorney. I'm going to say, hey, attorney, make a fund for me. And now I'm going to just like print. No, like just like um, money in the fractional reserve banking system derives its value from the credit worthiness and the collateral that's put up by the borrower, the fund, the securities have to have something from which it derives its value. And in that case, it's accurately measured, verifiable risk adjusted performance. A number is extremely esoteric knowledge, like the Blackstones of the world know it, right? The Wells Fargo's don't, right? Um, but um, the book is meant to say, hey, like you're frustrated by the banking system. Well, here's your pathway to duplicate what they do in a compliant and uh, viable sort of manner. Incredibly, man. Unbelievable. I can't wait to read this book, The Shadow Banker's Secret Investment Banking for Alternatives. I also, Ben, have many introductions for you as uh, working with some of uh, the people that are in your community to help facilitate utilizing the shadow banks for good. Uh, just appreciate your enlightenment and awareness to uh, be able to come on here and explain what most people have no clue about pertaining to the quantifiable uh, risk analysis and success of the portfolio management and in investing in uh, different financial sector sectors as well. Ben, I wish I uh, would have recruited you. Maybe we could have got you into the big leagues paying for the Padres. And uh, we both could have shared in some of the baseball success that my Padres haven't seen in a while. Uh, but we're almost there. Uh, look forward uh, to having you back on to other shows, maybe do a podcast swap with my boys. Uh, but anything we can do for you, please let me know. Congratulations on your success. Appreciate that. And uh, you'd be surprised. The pathway wasn't boring. Like my, <laughs> my I was an athlete. That's who I was. Like every other athlete you ever represented. And then when, when you get beyond that, it's depressing. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And eventually it's like, I just need to be independent and finance with that pathway. So anyway, that's it. Good to see that's you guys. Cool. No, every, athlete, every athlete, especially professional ones, live two deaths. And a lot of people... You don't just have to be a Hall of Famer to live those two deaths. And, you know, I played college ball and there, there was a death when I graduated college. So I totally it's understood right. that. We'll, we'll get back on it, my friend. Adagio Group, Adagio.Capital. Check out the Shadow Banker's Secret. Know your timing and risk tolerance. You can make a lot of money, help a lot of people, and have a lot of fun. Ben, we'll catch a Padre game together. I'll talk to you soon. Good to see you. Take care. Right on. Yeah, you picked up on that. I was, I was holding back there. Anyway, we want to thank Adidas for their sponsorship. We want to thank Adidas for their sponsorship. You know, they got nervous, Adidas. Uh, you know, Nike dropped Tiger, and uh, Adidas picked up Mike Diamond and David Meltzer. So uh, it was a fair trade for sure. Uh, anyway, what's uh, amazing, amazing friends on today? What, what, what's your takeaway for the day? All right, I got a good one. So we're souls with spirits having a human experience, and we're on the school of Earth, Earth school. So always be open to opportunities and learning. Lean into what you're interested in, right? Don't know where it's going to go, but lean into it. Educate yourself, and the rest will open up. I love it. Mine is uh, the reconciliation of understanding that education is an investment in yourself. And when we make investments, we have ROIs. Uh, and we need to know the timing and risk tolerance of even our education. 
remember, it's, you know, we're not going to spend money on an education. When we spend, there's no return on investment. The greatest return on investment is in education. Not everybody can afford to go to Princeton, Cornell, and St. John's or Johns Hopkins Medical School. I understand that, and you understand that. Uh, but where there's a will or the way to find that and understand the timing of risk tolerance to fund whatever it is necessary in order to accelerate your understanding awareness through education, the best way to shorten the distance of resistance in your life between your behaviors and what you want or better is to get educated and have faith that you're going to get there faster and better than you even could imagine. That's what Mike Diamond did in his career. That's what I've done in mine. Whether you're utilizing applied mathematics, theoretical physics, or just simple asking for help from those that know those things, find that quantitative return on investment by making the appropriate investment aligned with your timing and risk tolerance. Mike Diamond, my Adidas. Thank you so much. We'll see you next Wednesday. Appreciate you being here. Love you, mate. Bye. Love you, mate. Thank you. All right, everyone. I want to thank Raluca from the Eastern Block. And she is uh, producing the show from Europe. And we're coming on late afternoon. It's almost dinner time for her there. Hopefully, she's following up with the extraordinary amount of options, opportunities, and touches of favor that we're sending her way uh, for all the different things that we're doing at Dave Meltzer Enterprises. But I wanted to thank her. That's not easy on the road, uh, taking up her family time. Appreciate it. Email me, david at dmeltzer.com. We have training coming up this Friday. I will be in Vegas today. We'll be in the studio with Dane Cook, Will I Am, Clinton Sparks, and many, many more. Stop by. We'll be uh, in the wind in the lobby uh, right by the buffet uh, at the studio. And tomorrow, I'll be with Tim Story, Joe Montana, Gary V in Santa Clara at the Santa Clara Convention Center, also doing a meetup there uh, in the morning. So please email me, david at emelter.com. We're in 200 cities this year. We'll be in Florida. We'll be in Atlanta. We'll be in Nashville uh, coming up right after this. So if you want to be alerted on where we are and when we are, text us 949-298-2905. Remember, most importantly, though, as indicative of the extremely intelligent, intuitive, and inspired guests that we had today, be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks so much.